Well, take your Bibles, open them to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, as today we finally arrive at the end of a very long section in Matthew's gospel. And we have at the end a, a snapshot summary of the ministry of Christ so far, yet it also sets up much of what is to come in the rest of Matthew's gospel as he traces the life of Christ. We learn so much about the earthly ministry of Jesus in the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But at the same time, so much is left out. When you think about it, we only have really a a few snapshots of the life of Jesus. We get a sampling of his words and deeds, but this is nowhere near a complete record. So many other things he did and said, we just don't know about. And like John says at the end of his gospel, the world cannot contain the books that would be written of all that he said and did. And also keep in mind, what we do have only comes from a short three-year span of time. His active ministry was only three years. Yet, he did so much in those three years that he he turned the world upside down. His ministry was short. His life was relatively short. I don't know about you, but sometimes I think we we, kind of treat Jesus like he's an old man because he has so much wisdom and power. But in his earthly ministries, he was in his 30s. How much did you accomplish by 30? Jesus did so much in those 30 years that we now divide all human history to the time before and after his birth, B.C., A.D. I mean, what an impact from this one life. Now, we know it was not just his life that made that impact, but also his death and resurrection. All three are essential, though. His perfect life, his atoning death, his bodily resurrection— Remove anyone, he would not be our our complete or perfect savior. He would not have had such an impact. Now, in our time going through Matthew's gospel, we're making our way through verse by verse. We still have a ways to go before we learn about that atoning death, that bodily resurrection. For now, we're still beholding the glory of this one perfect life. I'm often struck by how much we don't know. We all wish we could time travel, and if only we could do it, if the only thing we could do is just go back and be with Jesus in like a random Tuesday in October, we'd still do it, and I'm sure we'd still be amazed. But we do have to be reminded that in God's wisdom and in his providence, we have been given everything we need in these gospels to truly behold this Savior. We have what we need to come to faith in him, to trust him with our lives, and then to follow him. And this morning, we're going to see that in summary fashion. The end of chapter 9 here is just, it's just a summary of what's gone on so far and and what's to come. We're not told what Jesus did every minute of every day, but even in a summary of his earthly ministry, we're we're to be moved to wonder, to faith, to discipleship. So we have here Matthew 9, verses 32 through 38, end of the chapter. This is a transition in Matthew's gospel. For several months, we've been going through Matthew 8 and 9, and in these two chapters, said this like a million times, but he's showing us a series of Christ's miraculous deeds. We've gone through these, these nine accounts of Jesus working wonders and displaying his divine authority. And now we get to the last of those. <clears throat> but thereafter, Matthew transitions <clears throat> so as to prepare us for what else is to come in Christ's life and in Christ's ministry. That includes further ministry because it's not like Jesus only performed nine wonders or nine miracles. There's many more to come. It also includes growing opposition. We've seen that the beginnings of opposition to him in chapter 9, 
but it's about to turn a corner and heat up all the way into the cross. That's starting right about now. That's not going to stop Jesus. His compassion leads him to keep ministering all the way to the cross. We see that beginning here as well, that we get the first glimpse of the heart of the Savior for the lost, why he's doing all this. There's one big difference, though, between what we've seen so far in Christ's life and ministry and what's to come in the rest of this gospel, the turning point right here so far. Uh, Excuse me. So far, Jesus has worked alone. He has ministered alone, taught alone, healed alone. His disciples, they're around him. They're just followers. They're just watching. That's about to change. Soon, he's going to turn his disciples into disciplers. Although he alone is the Savior, he's going to commission them to be his messengers. And we see that start to turn, that change start to happen in our text today. That really paves the way for chapter 10. Matthew 10 is the second of these five major discourses Matthew gives us. These five great messages or sermons of the Savior reproduced in length in Matthew's gospel. The first one was the greatest, Sermon on the Mount. It's Matthew 5 through 7. But the second one is, is not one to sleep on. It, it's the commissioning of the twelve. And then the message that follows, it's in Matthew 10. It's where Jesus will now send the twelve out to preach and carry on his work. But in that commission, we're going to find so many timeless truths that to apply to our discipleship and our great commission as well. And so there's a lot to come. This is the hinge, end of chapter 9. We don't want to get ahead of ourselves. We need to go through this summary which also serves as a preview, setting up everything else to come in Matthew's gospel. So Matthew 9, 32 through 38, we'll read as we go. But this text gives us, I think you could say, six samples of the Savior's mission. Good way to organize this. Six samples of the Savior's mission, which prepare us for what's to come and prepare us for our own discipleship. Six samples of the Savior's mission. The first being the Savior's dominion. Verses 32, 33, this this wraps up these nine miracle accounts here. The Savior's dominion. Let's start verse 32. You can look there. It says, As they were going out, a mute, demon-possessed man was brought to him, Jesus. Verse 32 says, As they were going out, is picking up from the previous account, which is where Jesus healed two blind men, the first time that's ever been done in biblical history. But as soon as these two men, their sight is restored, they leave this house where Jesus is ministering. And as soon as they go out, this mute, demon-possessed man goes in. There's no rest for Jesus, rarely a dull moment. But this mute man did not go to Jesus on his own. It says he was brought to Jesus. And so who brought him? We could have just been random friends. We don't know for sure. But I do want to point out there's a very interesting possibility the way this is phrased in the Greek. Because verse 32 more literally says, as they were going out, a mute demon-possessed man, they brought to him. So it makes us wonder, who's the they? The subject of the sentence was those two formerly blind men. They went out. And the way this is phrased, it's very possible they were the same ones who then turned around and brought this mute man to see Jesus. We can't say that for sure, but it's worth a thought that after having received the Lord's mercy, that the first thing they thought of was to go out and bring someone else to Jesus, that he too might find the same mercy. 
As we've said before, one of the first fruits that should emerge on a new tree of faith should be this desire to tell others about the Lord. I can imagine a scenario where these two blind men who were total outcasts from society, they were well acquainted with the other outcasts in society, and this mute, demon-possessed man would have qualified. So did they know this man? Did they function as his ears? Did he function as their eyes? I mean, we don't really know. We, we don't want to press speculation too far. But it's an interesting thought, enough to remind us either way that for us who have received the Lord's mercy in salvation, we should very much be those who go out and turn around and help others find him and receive that same mercy in salvation. Whoever is the subject Our focus now shifts to this new person, this demon-possessed man who is mute. And we've seen, and we'll see more, there are several instances where demons appear to have afflicted people with some sort of disease or physical ailment, so as to torture them. Their, Their mission is to mar the image of God in man. But look, don't get the impression that all disease or disability was caused by demons, certainly not. We have also seen plenty of cases where someone was just ill, no demon was involved. And somehow there was a clear way to differentiate the demon possessed from the ill. But scripture never gives us a way to discern the difference, nor does it tell us how Jesus and the disciples discern the difference. It's beside the point for now, this is just a summary, but for now we are merely told this man who is demon possessed, and it's leading to his condition being Mute. This Greek word for mute is kophos. It means to be blunted or dull. And when it's applied to the senses, applied to the ears, it speaks of someone who is deaf. When it's applied to the mouth, it speaks of someone who is mute. It could be either or. Now we're going to find later in verse 33 that when this man is healed, I mean, it's probably not a spoiler, Jesus is going to deliver this man. And when that happens, what does he do? Does he hear? No, he speaks. It's pretty obvious the implication that he was not deaf, but mute. Now, beyond that, we're told nothing else about uh, about this man. All we know is someone cared about him enough to bring him to Jesus that he might find deliverance, and he does. So verse 33 says, After uh, the demon was cast out, the mute man spoke. Now, you can tell Matthew's summarizing. We just have no details here. Did, did Jesus speak to him? Did he lay hand on him? We, no, we don't know. We're just told the bare facts. He was mute. The demon was cast out. He spoke. It's kind of enough said. No mention is made of this man's faith. Did he know Jesus? Did he believe in him? We don't know. However, if Matthew is trying to tell us that faith is always required to receive healing, he would have mentioned his faith, but, but no. In these two chapters, we've seen so many great examples of true faith and what it looks like, from the Roman centurion to the paralytic and his four friends to this nameless woman in the crowd. This is not one of those. At this point, Matthew is just trying to finish up, show us Jesus. This is that ninth and final witness of his authority and power. Everything wrong with this world, from eyes to ears, storms to spirits, sickness to suffering. Jesus has shown he can fix, he can restore. He has the power, he has the authority, and he just keeps proving it. There's nothing beyond that power and authority. It's universal. That's, that's the point. 
And so for everything we've witnessed from these two chapters, the jury's in. Everything that is said of Jesus is true. Namely, he is Christ, the Messiah, the Lord. He is the son of David. He's the son of man. He's the son of God. And all those titles mean, which we've studied. This last healing, the opening of the mouth of a mute man, it it doesn't feel as miraculous as some of the others, like restoring sight to the blind or raising of the dead. But don't let that fool you. This is still miraculous. You know, a prince who is ninth in line to the throne is still a prince. Don't neglect the glory of this very simple account you otherwise might just read right over. When this demon-wrought disability encountered Christ, it, it was no match. We're reminded Jesus came to fix everything wrong with this world in the end, physical and spiritual. He is the only one who can do so. This is not the last time we will see Jesus work wonders, but you put it all together, Matthew 8 and 9, it's really a trilogy of trilogies, these nine accounts, three groups of three, and they're like expert witnesses brought in to testify of Jesus. We've seen them all, and their message is loud and clear. Christ is the Lord. Now, that said, I think we've spent enough time dwelling on the witness of Christ's authority, and Matthew himself signals it's time to move on, and perhaps that's why he included this last account, because it gives rise to the reaction of the crowd, and that is something he wants to turn our attention to now, and so let's do that. Secondly, the Savior's admiration. The Savior's admiration. Verse 32 again or rather, uh, verse 33, after the demon was cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds were amazed. And we're saying nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. We've seen this word for amazed several times before. It's used to describe the disciples after Jesus stilled the storm back in chapter 8, verse 27. Then it was used to describe the crowds after Jesus healed the paralytic, chapter 9, verse 8. This word speaks of being awestruck or dumbfounded. It's like when you see something that is not possible, but then you see it. So like all of Christ's miracles, that that's supposed to be impossible, but I just saw it, you would be amazed. There's no natural explanation. And so what did the crowd see? Because there's a crowd formed around this house, and they had witnessed before these two blind men go into the house, and then they come out seeing And then this mute man goes into the house, and he comes out speaking. It's like, what's going on in the house? Well, Jesus, who is he? He's a prophet, they thought, but he must be something more. And the crowd says here, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. And that is true. I mean, yeah, in the time of Moses, Elijah, Elisha, there were some miracles in the land of Israel but, you know, by quantity and quality, nothing comes close to the active ministry of Jesus. I mean, his wonder-working power, he basically banished sickness from the region in those three years. He had total authority over the natural and spiritual realm. It's like a tour de force of divine power. The crowds were amazed, and we will see them continue to be amazed as we go forward. But is that enough? You know, witnessing the power and authority of Jesus, whether you see it or you read about it. It demands a response. And amazement is appropriate, 
but it has to go well beyond amazement. It's one thing to be an admirer of Jesus, and it's another to follow him. But for these crowds, rarely did their amazement actually translate into discipleship. They would follow him around land and sea because they admired him. They wanted to hear him, see him. He healed their bodies. He fed them bread. But, you know, what happens when this Jesus starts making demands, discipleship demands? What happens when he starts placing demands, God's demands, on the lives of his followers, which is his prerogative. He is the Lord. But when that happens, the crowd is, is, they're less amazed. Their excitement level quickly drops. I mean, they like the free bread, but they don't like what Jesus says about sin and repentance, what he says about the exclusivity of salvation in him alone, and then his demands of total allegiance. Their amazement fades And in time, these crowds will stop chasing Jesus around. In a couple of chapters, we will hear Jesus pronounce the most serious woe of judgment on Capernaum. This city where he performed so many miracles, yet most of them, they were amazed, but they were not believing. Elsewhere, Jesus says this in response to the crowd who marveled at him. Listen to Luke 9, 43 through 44. After a healing, it says, And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. But while everyone was marveling at all that he was doing, he said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears, for the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Why would he say that? Everyone is amazed by you. Now you're saying you're going to be delivered into their hands. Translation, they're like, hey, they love me today. They're going to hate me tomorrow. Jesus will be admired by the crowds for now, but later they will crucify him. You know, by the end of his ministry, after all of his teaching, all of his healing, all of his work, do you know how many, I guess we could say, meaningful disciples Jesus had? When all is said and done, by the end, he's ascended. How many meaningful disciples did he have? About 500. That's the number of those to whom he appeared after his resurrection, according to 1 Corinthians 15. So 500, max. That's a small remnant from the tens of thousands who witnessed him and watched him and admired him. It's good to be amazed by Jesus, but it's it's far better if that amazement convicts you of your sin and your need, draws you repentance and faith in the same Savior who can do the greater work of cleansing you and making you new. This is a fitting reminder, a challenge for all of us. There are countless ways to respond to Jesus, and they're all wrong except one. It's not enough to admire him or adore him or applaud him. You must follow him. And you do that by repentance and faith. You express that daily. It's a daily, continual, lifelong pursuit of Christ. However, how many people today attend church and they are admirers but not followers? How many wear the cross as jewelry, but they refuse to pick up the cross and suffer shame for his namesake? How many are thrilled to sing songs about Jesus, but not so thrilled to order every aspect of their lives around his word? I mean, he is Lord. We call him Lord. That means master. So do you listen to him? Not just admire him, but do you follow him? That means Do you do what he says? His commands are not burdensome. They're a joy. But what did he say in John 15, 14? 
John 15, 14, Jesus himself said, you are my friends if you do what I command you. At the end of the day, if you're not with Jesus by faith, you're going to be found against him. That means in sin, without a savior, that's not a good place to be. There's no neutrality. There's no middle zone. You're either with him or against. You're either following him all the way or you're not. Repent, believe in him, follow him today. You might think, but it's not like I hate Jesus. I don't oppose him, not against him. But just realize on the last day, all these people who admired Jesus but didn't follow him, they go to the same place as the people who, who hated him. To follow is the only right response. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. You must follow Jesus. Now, speaking of those who hated him, a third sample of his ministry, the Savior's opposition. Let's get a sample now of his opposition. And that's all it is, but verse 34. We saw how the the crowds responded. They're amazed. The Pharisees, not so much. Verse 34 says, but the Pharisees were saying, He casts out the demons by the ruler of the demons. While the crowds magnified Jesus, the Pharisees sought to diminish him. The opposite of magnifying. Like, even if they felt when they watched Jesus work wonders, I'm sure they felt some like inner amazement, but they had to quickly squelch those feelings, suppress them, because they could not support Jesus. They could not affirm him. Why not? What's the big deal? Why did they oppose him so much? You know about this, but why? I mean, he's clearly the Messiah, clearly the Son of God. Nobody can do these things. But they could not get behind him because they loved self too much and they feared God too little. There was no real fear of God in their hearts. Just think of the level of hardness of heart required to like, physically see divine power, this display, the shock and awe. Like, there's people who are blind and he just touches them, they see. Someone who's dead and he touches them, they come to life. He just speaks and someone can hear. But the level of hardness required to see that and then deny it, or even worse, attribute it to the devil, all because of their love of self. As Jesus said of them so often, these the scribes, the Pharisees, they love self like way more than they love God. They were puffed up and pride, feeding off of the applause and the recognition of men. He said of them in the Sermon on the Mount, they did all of their righteous deeds to be noticed by men. They weren't serving God. They are serving themselves. Essentially, they wanted to be worshipped because they firmly sat on the throne in their hearts as Lord. Then along comes Jesus, and look, if he is the Messiah, he should be in their corner. They expected the Messiah to come and vindicate them to serve their interests as Israel was restored to preeminence among the nations. But when Jesus comes as as the true Messiah, that's not how things shake out. He did not come to exalt them. Rather, recognizing their pride, he, he hammered them down. That's because God is opposed to the proud. And even worse, they were wicked shepherds They were leading people away from God. And so Jesus came to rescue his people from their teeth. And meanwhile, put these leaders in their place while he was at it. He didn't buy into their false interpretation of scripture. He paid no attention to their man-made rules and traditions. Meant nothing to him. 
he did not recognize their authority at all. I mean, these two chapters, he's displaying his authority, and that's, that's butting up against their authority. There's going to be trouble here. You can't have two heads. But in all, Jesus reserves his strongest, harshest rebuke for the religious leaders of Israel. He did not coddle them or pander to them, but he rebuked them openly, calling out their false teaching and their hypocrisy whenever he could. And that was going to be a problem. Because these leaders knew that if the people start like actually paying attention to what he's saying, it's, it's exposing their racket. They're going to lose their power. In time, Jesus became like an existential threat to their way of life, their social, their religious life and power. They couldn't let that stand. Now, I trust you know how this is going to end. These same people will oppose Jesus so much that they will conclude, we just have to get rid of him. We have to silence him forever for good. He's saying too much. He's doing too much. And they will succeed as they coerce the Romans to crucify him. That is yet to come. But at this point in Matthew's gospel, we've just we've turned a corner. The opposition now is, is fixed. Up to this point, we've seen some evidence they were investigating Jesus. One point, they sent a delegation from Jerusalem to go up to Galilee, check him out. What's he saying? What's he about? Investigation's over. It's, it's not going to work. They can't work together. Jesus does not recognize their authority. That's the bottom line. He, he claims his own. That's not going to work. And so from here on out, when Jesus speaks with authority or works with authority, his miracles, they, they can't let that go unchallenged. They have to challenge his authority. And here, in little summary form, we see one of their biggest, most common challenges to his power and authority what does verse 34 say? That he casts out the demons by the rulers of, or the ruler rather, of the demons. Like the Pharisees, the scribes, they saw all the same miracles, all the same signs. They witnessed them all. And never did they deny his power. They didn't even try, not once, to deny his power. They never claimed he was a magician. They never said he was relying on tricks or gimmicks. That just shows you his healings were just too public, too powerful, too profound. The, the literal definition of undeniable. They never try and deny, like he didn't actually heal that person. He didn't really cure that blind person. They, they don't bother. But all they could hope to do was to deny the source of that power. Like sure, yeah, okay, yeah, Jesus is healing people. It's not coming from God's power. It's coming from the devils. That's what they mean. They're claiming that this Jesus, he's not some Messiah filled with God's spirit. He's, he's an anti-Messiah, anti-Christ filled with Satan's spirit. That's what they're saying. Those, those are some fighting words. And this demands a response. We don't get it here. Jesus will respond. That comes later in chapter 12. Remember, this is just a summary preview. Matthew's just marking the beginning to some serious opposition Jesus is going to face. And that's going to be a theme from here on out. It reaches, like I said in Matthew 12, an early fever pitch in that chapter. That's where we will later find the Pharisees once again claiming he casts out demons by the ruler of demons. Jesus will respond, and that's when he teaches on the unpardonable sin. That's Matthew 12. We'll save that for then. For now, Matthew is just foreshadowing what's to come. 
He's teaching us about how the wicked responded to Christ. And look, that says a lot about how the wicked will respond to us as we take his name. But just think that after these nine miraculous accounts, there would be some who rejected him and who did not believe in him, who hated him. Well, that's just how it goes. The darkness always hates the light. This actually is the real but sad climax of these nine miracles. After all this, yeah, the crowds were amazed, but he still faces rejection. The amazement of the crowds is fickle. The religious leaders think he's satanic, and we can already start to see the cross on the horizon. This is not going to end well. It's not going to end well for us who have salvation in him, but you know what I mean. In this fallen world, which is ruled by Satan for now, Jesus will be opposed. And it has obvious implications for his people. And this, in turn, anticipates what he's about to say in Matthew chapter 10. You just turn that page to Matthew 10. Even though Jesus lived a perfect life, he was ridiculed, he was rejected, and so will be those who follow him. A slave is not greater than his master. We don't really have time to summarize this chapter in any detail, but if they persecuted him, they're going to do the same to you. That's part of his message. You're you're sheep in the midst of wolves. I'm sending you out. However, you need not fear. Or to clarify, you need not fear man. You still better fear God, but the fear of God casts out the fear of man. The fear of God leaves no room for the fear of man. God is with you. God is good. He's with you, his people, his messengers. And greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. That is a big message coming up all throughout chapter 10, which we need to be equipped with. We'll save that for next time. For now, we've got to carry on with this, this summary, this preview. And so number four, a fourth sampling of his mission, of his ministry, the Savior's vocation. The Savior's vocation, verse 35. It says next, Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now, this is just a straight-up summary verse on the ministry or, or vocation of Jesus during his time on earth. This, this verse right here is pretty much his day job. This is his life's work. And to be clear, the atonement was his death's work. This is his life's work. It was the, the will of the Father that Jesus not rush to the cross. He did not come down from heaven as a fully mature 30-year-old man and then jump right on the cross. He lived a full life. He displayed active and perfect obedience. Now, at his baptism, Jesus left behind carpentry or whatever he was really doing, and he was to display his righteousness and reach the lost by taking up this new job, this new day job, a vocation. That did, it was characterized by three things. Teaching, preaching, healing. That's what comes out here. Teaching, preaching, healing. It's a pretty good summary of his vocation once his ministry started. You'll notice in this verse how his work was extensive. It says he went throughout all the cities and villages. First here in Galilee, but eventually it's going to include the later surrounding, or the surrounding regions later on. The Jewish historian Josephus records and tells us at this time there were around 200 
cities and villages in the region of Galilee. About a 70-mile by 40-mile patch of land. That's, that's a lot of stops, 200 cities and villages, and he was just going to them all as an itinerant minister. You know, a lot of people travel for work. In my very short career as an engineer, I, I got a taste of that lifestyle, going out doing site surveys, overseeing installs. And so that first year, I would fly out to some random city on a Monday and not fly back till Friday and just week in, week out, kind of do that, a traveling lifestyle. Happened to overlap with much of our first year of marriage, which was pretty unfortunate, but it's first job, what are you going to do? And it seemed like Jesus knew the hustle of that traveling lifestyle we always see him on the go. He was an itinerant minister. The only difference is that he was doing far greater work. What was Jesus doing in every city and village? It says first he was teaching and preaching. This captures his ministry of the word. He came as the word incarnate to minister the word. It says he taught in the synagogues. He instructed the Jews first and foremost on the true meaning of the scriptures for the Old Testament, while at the same time adding divine revelation. He spoke the word of God. Also, it says he was preaching the gospel of the kingdom. He came to announce the good news of God's reign being restored over this world, a kingdom which was drawing near in the presence of the king. The king was in their midst. Throughout history, men have always been lauded as great preachers, but Jesus was the real prince of preachers. It's pretty hard to compete with the Word of God incarnate. But his day job, teaching, preaching, you add in there, healing. And this now was his mercy ministry. You also see how extensive it was. It likewise says he healed every kind of disease, every kind of sickness in there for emphasis. That there are no exceptions. That he did not encounter anything beyond his power. There are things beyond the delegated power of the disciples, but nothing was beyond his inherent power. Not sickness, not fever, not leprosy, not paralysis, demon possession, muteness, blindness, even death. And all the miracles we've seen, Jesus doesn't even break a sweat. It does not look hard. He doesn't have to work up power. It just seems effortless with a word, with a touch. He issues forth his divine power, showing who he is. It results in these complete instantaneous, irrefutable healings. So verse 35, it gives us this short one verse, perfect summary of his ministry, his life's work before the cross. This is what we've seen so far, and we will continue to see this. I do want to point out, though, we've encountered a nearly identical summary verse like this before. And for those of you who have really good memories, you might remember Back in Matthew chapter 4, go ahead and turn there, verse 23, he says almost the exact same thing. And I want to point this out to you, Matthew 4, 23. This is after his birth, ministry of John, his baptism, his temptation, his early ministry, and then we have an early snapshot of his ministry, Matthew 4, 23. It says Jesus was going throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. It's pretty much the same thing, right? These are like nearly identical summaries. You may wonder then, now that you've seen the other side of it, why is Matthew repeating himself? Well, as Matthew writes his gospel, 
He includes these two summaries like bookends. The formal term is an inclusio, but this is a literary device meant to draw attention to what comes in between the bookends. So what comes in between? Well, we've repeated this many times, so I hope you know this, but Matthew here, he's been giving us just what he believes are the greatest examples or samples of the teaching and preaching of Jesus and the healing of Jesus. Remember, his, what's the summary? Teaching, preaching, healing. And so after that first little initial summary, Matthew 4.23, right after that, it's not a coincidence, we get the Sermon on the Mount. It's not chronological, he's throwing it in there. But this is, in Matthew's opinion, which I think we all would agree, the greatest sample of the teaching and preaching of Jesus, Matthew 5 through 7. Right after that, we get Matthew 8 and 9. We have a series of nine miracles Jesus performed, and Matthew says we would agree just the greatest sample of his healing ministry. You put it all together, we are given the picture in the first third of this gospel of what Jesus and his life was all about. These are great samples. Now, having concluded this testimony, Matthew now leaves us with just a nice, tidy, closing bookend, letting us know, hey, this large section is over. We're still going to see Jesus teach, preach, and heal, but other aspects of his life and work come into focus. He's going to point our eyes to other aspects of his life and work. And this actually happens immediately in the next verse. So you move on from this summary. Now, verse 36 For the first time in the gospel, Matthew starts giving us insight into Christ's heart. So far, we've seen him teach and heal, but very little mention has been made of his motives. Like, why is Jesus doing all this? Well, for the first time, still in summary preview form, we get a glimpse. Number five, the Savior's compassion. Verse 36, the Savior's compassion. It says after that, seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. And really, this is where Matthew gives us or or pulls back the curtain of the Lord's heart, giving us a first glimpse of his uh, defining attribute, his compassion, his mercy. And this very much characterizes Jesus In fact, the word here for compassion is only ever used of Jesus in the Gospels. He was a compassionate Savior. And from here on out, we're going to see Jesus time and time again be moved to compassion when seeing the people. It's just as he's confronted by the brokenness of mankind, he can't help but be moved to pity. He sees it physically staring him in the face with disease and deformity, disability, demon possession, death, just coming right at him. It moves him to mercy. But he knows even behind all that physical suffering, he sees man's deeper spiritual need. That all these people were just lost in their sins. They're blind to the things of God. And it moves him to pity. Even as he knows, like, these people are going to reject me. He's going to Jerusalem. They're going to kill him. He still can't help but weep over the city in compassion before he enters. And for Jesus, this is not just the human emotion of pity, but I would argue this is tied to the divine attribute of mercy. Mercy is an essential attribute of God, which we are to emulate, but Jesus shows us divine mercy, God's own mercy. 
like such a big deal to God that when he declared his own nature to Moses on Mount Sinai, this is what God said of himself. It's what he said first, Exodus 34, 6. He says, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. It's just the essence of who God is. And his mercy and compassion toward Israel were expressed time and time again. He showed them favor when they deserved none. He withheld wrath when they deserved it. And now Jesus comes issuing the same divine loving kindness, the same long-suffering, the same mercy toward the lost. None of the people who received anything from Jesus, a healing, deliverance, bread, teaching, none of them deserved any of it. No one deserves anything good from the Lord, but he gives it anyway. We've seen Jesus deal compassionately with the sick several times so far. This compassion truly marks his ministry. He was moved to alleviate suffering under the curse anytime he could. But the Savior knew man's real problem was more than skin deep. I mean, Jesus could heal bodies all day, but he knew these people, they're all going to get sick again and eventually die. That's because he knew this world is cursed. Mankind is cursed and all goes back to the root of sin. But you should also know that this same mercy, but even a greater mercy, is what led him to come and not just teach, heal, and preach, but to ascend the cross, whereby he would provide for our greater healing. Jesus died for the forgiveness of our sins, and like he certainly did not do so because we deserved it. Now, just the opposite. He knew we deserved wrath, but this mercy and this grace is what compelled him in the Father's will to offer up his perfect life in exchange for all of ours. This is why he came, to save us by this mercy and compassion. Now back to verse 36, it says, Jesus viewed the people as sheep. All these people, they're they're lost sheep. They don't even know better. And that's because it says here they have no shepherd. Sheep is a very familiar metaphor for God's people in the Old and New Testaments. I mean, what better way to picture a people for whom God cares, but they're just so lost and helpless and hopeless. They're defenseless. Sheep are totally dependent on their shepherds, just as we are totally dependent on God. But for sheep to be without a shepherd spells trouble. That characterizes the state of Israel that Jesus found. Now, technically, they had shepherds in their religious leaders, But as we've seen, they were wicked, evil, self-serving shepherds. They were there to fleece the flock, not feed the flock. And so what Jesus says here really is an indictment on them. That's not the focus for now, but all the woes that the Lord pronounced on Israel's wicked shepherds way back in Ezekiel 34, an important passage, all of them get amplified, doubled down on for the shepherds and the day of Christ. For now, though, Jesus is moved to compassion over this flock. They have no shepherd to lead them, to protect them. And see what it says? He says this flock is distressed and dispirited. You see that? Those two words, that the translation doesn't bring out the word picture behind the two words. How he describes this flock. They're distressed. They're dispirited. That word for distressed means to skin, to flay, or to lacerate. 
The word for dispirited means to cast down, to hurl, to scatter. So these two words are not incidental. You put them together and the picture is of a flock that has just been ravaged by predators. You picture a flock that they've been ripped apart. They're bleeding. They're battered. They're scattered. They're down. They're helpless. It's like they've all received a mortal wound, but they're still alive. Just this pathetic sight of a, a flock that's been ravaged. That's what he sees, and that is true. That is pretty much the spiritual state of Israel Jesus found. These people, they're lost, they're blind, they're held captive to sin and Satan, and their leaders are not helping, they're handing them over. But this, again, is why Jesus came, because he is the chief shepherd. Remember the prophecy of his birthplace back in Matthew 2.6, he was Supposed to be born in Bethlehem, and he was. Why Bethlehem? City of David, the great shepherd. But in that prophecy, Matthew 2, 6 recalls, Out of Bethlehem shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. A ruler who shepherds. And Jesus is that good shepherd. And he proves it not by domineering over the sheep, but laying down his life for the sheep to save them. In his great compassion, he came to gather and to bind up his lost sheep, body and soul. And look, he has, he has a lot of sheep. It includes the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But as he says in John, he has sheep from another fold. That's speaking of the Gentiles, the nations. There are many whom he desired to call to himself, even well beyond the cities and villages of Galilee. I mean, he's gone to the nations. Jesus is the only Savior As the Lamb of God, he's the only atoning sacrifice. The work of salvation belongs to him alone. But he knew that there are so many people who need to hear the news that the good shepherd has come and died, that you might have life. He knew that this message needed to span the course of many countries and many centuries. And so he knew, while the primary work was his of atoning on the cross, the the secondary work of taking this good news to the nations, would belong to his disciples. He would give it to his disciples. That has not happened yet in Matthew's gospel, but it starts to happen right now. And so let's see, finally, to finish up by way of summary preview. Number six, the Savior's commission. The Savior's commission. Verse 37, after expressing his compassion, it says, then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Jesus switches metaphors from picturing his people as sheep to now grain that's ripe for harvest. Harvest metaphor often used in a context of judgment, but now in one of salvation. And there there are many. There are many out there to call, but workers are few. Again, only Christ's work on the cross saves, but the work of spreading that good news which is received by faith. I mean, it it calls for many workers. Just like Romans 10 uh, reminds us, Romans 10, 13, it says, whoever will call in the name of the Lord will be saved. Both people who were lost and dead themselves, but transformed by this same gospel message, now sent back out to tell others. That is the glory of his discipleship. It started with these 12 and has continued down in this unbroken chain For 2,000 years, we are part of that. His witnesses and his workers. 
And so with all this in mind, the work is great. You next expect Jesus to that lead a call for volunteers. All right, there's a lot of work to be done out there, guys. Who's with me? Who are my volunteers? Who's going to go out into this field? But surprisingly, that's, that's not what he does. He does not next call for workers. He first calls for prayer. And that's verse 38. He says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. It's kind of unexpected, right? It's interesting. Jesus commissions here first prayer. Basically saying just, hey, there's a lot of work to do, so you better pray. Pray to the God of the harvest that he would raise up and send out workers. Someone better get out there, so you better pray that God will send someone. We expect the disciples to be told that they need to get out there and work, but Jesus first tells them they need to pray. And this, I think, is meant to communicate that though we have a responsibility to do, God is still in charge. He is sovereign over the harvest. This is his field after all, so, so beseech him. Jesus points to prayer as truly effective, that we need God to work. Otherwise, all of our labor is in vain. And so we should be praying from start to finish in this work of harvesting. But Jesus knows something happens when you start praying for God to raise up workers. When you start praying for the salvation of your loved one, something happens. Such a prayer has a a way of changing us, of working on our hearts. Indeed, this is how God most often uses prayer, not to change his mind, but to change ours. It's one way he conforms us to his will. And through such prayers, God puts it on our hearts that, And maybe we should be the worker who will rise up and go out and reach the lost. And this is precisely what happens next in chapter 10. We'll say again, by way of preview, it anticipates what is to come as Jesus will formally commission these 12. He'll connect the dots that, yes, you need to pray, but you also need to be those workers. He prepares them as he sends them out as sheep in the midst of wolves. But God is with them. He will give power to them and to their words. The same power we've seen on display will be with us. We need not fear. There's so much emboldening instruction we need, and it comes next in chapter 10. But this moment right here represents a significant transition in the ministry of Jesus. Because so far, his disciples have been onlookers. They've been followers, but not participants. All the teaching. All the preaching, all the healing has been done by Jesus alone. It's a one-man show. But starting right now, he will share aspects of his ministry. That the disciples will teach, preach, and even heal by his delegated power and authority. That they might reach more lost sheep, because there are a lot of cities and villages. This is only the beginning. But by the ending of this gospel, this simple commission turns into what we call a great commission. And why do you think that's how Matthew ends his gospel? His very last words are this great commission. It's telling you how we, what we should take away from all this, as we now are those who have been impacted. We are those who've received the Lord's greater mercy. What do you think you ought to do about that? The Lord knew his time earthly or in bodily form on earth would be short, a little flash in the pan, but it would turn the world upside down and it would do so through his disciples who take the gospel message, which has all the power, as they just take that and unleash it in the nations. It would 
It would do its work. Jesus built this self-reproducing discipleship network powered by the Holy Spirit, and that now includes us. So, look, we've seen this morning, this is a simple summary passage. It's nothing flashy. You probably would read right over it, but it already calls to mind truths we, we cannot forget. We were reminded we are those who have received the Lord's compassion and mercy, first and foremost. We, too, were those lost sheep, scattered, torn down, battered, hopeless, defenseless in our sin. Only by his mercy were we made alive in him and reconciled. And as you reflect on your salvation by his grace, as we sing this morning, it should move you to thankfulness, to worship, reflecting on his compassion, and that you should be happy to take up the charge to pray, to pray to the Lord of the harvest. First and foremost, thereafter, beseech the Lord to extend that same mercy that changed you to others. The hope that you've been giving, you should be happy to pray the Lord would give it to others, your friends, your loved ones, everyone, for they all need it. Be praying that he raises up workers, but just know that if you pray such a prayer, if you dare to pray such a prayer, that the Lord is going to work on your heart. And despite all your fears, we will trust that he will move you to raise you up to be such a worker, as in the end of this gospel, we are all called to be. I pray he makes all of you ready to say, here I am, Lord, send me. Let's remember how the Lord has chosen to involve us in his work as disciples. He gets all the glory. We're merely instruments, but we are participants. There's no seat warmers, no observers among his disciples. Let us be with those to extend his mercy, his message of mercy to others. So much more to come that we need to hear in Matthew 10. But I'll leave you now with this fitting verse. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20. It reminds us this. It says, Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. So we beg you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's our heart, that's our prayer, that's now our commission, and let's fulfill it. And let's pray. Our God in heaven, we, we exalt you this, this morning, even when we catch the slightest glimpse, glimpse of the life and work of our Savior, we are moved. We are, we are made amazed that he did so much. He displayed the power and authority he has in himself as the divine Messiah. We do worship. We, we want our response to go beyond mere amazement or adoration or admiration, but to turn into worship and discipleship, obedience. And we see he is the Lord, proven by his works and deeds, his teaching, his death, and that we are those who follow him. So I pray you convict all of our hearts this morning as we look to ourselves. Do we merely listen to Jesus, admire him, or do we follow him? And as those who follow We take up his charge to pray for the lost, to pray that you would send out workers while trusting you will do work in our hearts to be those, no longer afraid, but to be lights shining in a darkness. It's a familiar message, but we need it week in, week out, because there are a lot of cities and villages around us as well. There's just too many people who need still to hear this good news. And if you don't work in us, 
who will go. I pray you send us and make us faithful. You embolden us this morning. Thank you for your word in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.